While the politicians debate how much money it should have, the IRS cranked dutifully away this past tax filing season. The agency says it operated on schedule for the first time since 2020, the advent of the pandemic. The Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration tracked the season closely with what it found, the acting deputy IG for audits, Diana Tengisdahl. Ms. Tengisdahl, good to have you with us. Good morning. Good to be here. And you have statistics through the end of March, so that's a pretty good picture of most of the filing season. Were they pretty good relative to historical levels of service? I would say they were tracking pretty good, yes. Our statistics for this report were as of the beginning of March, March 3rd of 2023. So number of returns received was 54.9 million compared to last filing season at the same time frame of 54.7 million in terms of refunds that were the volume of refunds on those tax returns was 42 million compared to about 38 million last year at the same time and then the total refunds that were issued this year totaled 127.3 billion compared to 129.2 billion last year and then I know another statistic that most individuals are interested about is average refund amount. And as of March 3rd, 2023, the average refund amount on individual tax returns was $3,028 compared to last filing season, which was 3401 Well, I guess one thing we can deduce is that Americans are creatures of habit with respect to withholding and filing deadlines, it sounds like. But what about the turnaround of the processing? I mean, this was the issue in the pandemic because of whatever, a million reasons, including some of the paper that got stuck. But electronically, is the turnaround pretty much as the IRS would like it to be, according to its own metrics? For the electronically filed returns, the turnaround time is is generally the way they would like it to. However, as it relates to paper return processing, the IRS received, as of March 3rd, 2023, the IRS received about 1.4 million paper-filed individual tax returns compared to 1.5 million last year. Um, Moreover, the IRS carried over fewer paper-filed individual tax returns that did not complete processing at the end of calendar year 2022. They carried over 437,000 paper-filed individual tax returns into the start of this filing season. That compared to 4.7 million tax returns for the same time frame as of last year. And I'm happy to say that as it relates to those paper file tax returns that the IRS carried over, IRS was able to process that carryover inventory by February 4th of 2023, which was about one and a half weeks subsequent to the start of the filing season. Right. So there's a big backlog that had built up for a variety of reasons. It seems like they're pretty much back to the paper processing that they had before the pandemic. Well, the IRS cleared the carryover of individual paper tax returns that were waiting to be processed. Um, However, they do continue to have backlogs and other tax processing related programs. For example, rejected returns. That's when a return cannot be processed because it's missing information or there's incorrect information on the tax return and the IRS needs to correspond with a taxpayer and wait for the taxpayer to respond and provide them with information at which time then they can resolve the error and continue processing the tax return. And the IRS is also behind on processing amended individual tax returns. 
All right. We're speaking with Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration's Acting Deputy IG for Audit, Diana Tengisdal. I just want to pull on the paper for one second. At one time, many years ago, the IRS was entirely paper. Can they process paper in general, do you think, now as fast as they could when the whole thing was paper and they have these vast operations and desks with 15 trays around the perimeter, this kind of thing? I mean, what does it look like in the modern era for them? As you may know, the IRS is undergoing a lot of transformation, and they're looking to um, expand on some of their efforts to digitize tax returns, part of some federal mandates. They, they refer to those as their scanning initiatives, and that's going to help them in terms of modernizing their overall tax return processing efforts as it relates to the paper file tax returns. Right. I know one of the digitization efforts they're looking at is trying to scan paper documents and turn it into machine-readable data. I I think they're having step-by-step progress there. That is correct. And let's talk about customer service with respect to the telephones. That's been bedeviling them, but the reports are now that they're recovering their ability to answer the phone and to get people a correct answer in some kind of a timely fashion. Did you look at that and what did you find so far? So we did look at the IRS's telephone measures and as of March 4th, 2023, we found that the level of service that the IRS was providing was 80.6% compared to the same time frame in 2022 in which the IRS provided only a 19.5% level of service. And level of service calculates the level of service taxpayers have at speaking with an assister. That is a measure IRS uses. It does not reflect overall call demand for telephone assistance, and it does not reflect the quality of the answers being provided via the phone. In terms of wait time, this year, as of March 4th, it was five minutes compared to the same time frame last year, which was 24 minutes, so definitely Um, much better than what they had done in the prior year. As it related to the correct answer, our our review did not evaluate whether the IRS was providing taxpayers with the correct answer. However, TIGDA as a whole has work in this area that they're going to complete on the quality of phone assistance, where they're going to look at the accuracy, professionalism, and if taxpayers are being provided timely assistance to address their matters. And that's work that we have planned this year that will likely finish um, sometime in the coming months. And those favorable statistics on the level of service at 80.6 percent, the reduction in speed of answer comes as the number of calls between 2022 and 2023 really rose substantially. It looks like there was another, golly, almost a half a million more calls, more than almost uh, almost three quarters of a million more calls. That is correct. Well, then, is the IRS back to where it should be in, in totality? Well, let, let me answer this by saying that the IRS has definitely made significant progress to reduce its tax return inventories closer to pre-pandemic levels and to provide service to taxpayers. As we noted in our report, IRS management stated that for the first time since the pandemic, individual tax return processing and related activities are returning to normal timeliness goals. That's something that they haven't had happen for the last several years because of the pandemic. 
And would it be accurate to say they have done this even though they are not really back to the full staffing that they're authorized and funded for? That would be correct. And now we have talked about the statistics through the beginning of March. You are examining what happened for the full tax season, and that report is going to be some months ahead, correct? That is also correct, yes. We are continuing our work to evaluate the remainder of the filing season, and we'll provide updated statistics in the report that we plan to issue later this calendar year. But in the absence of some catastrophic event, which we don't, which we know didn't happen, so far as anyone can tell, nothing bad happened. It sounds like those numbers are likely to bear out when you look at the full season. Yes, that would be correct. Right, I well, don't expect there to be any significant differences. And maybe just a quick question on the levels of fraud detection. I mean, this is something they've made a lot of progress on also over the years, and electronics has helped a lot with that. What's What should we know about the activities on the fraud and fraud detection and fraud prevention front? That the IRS continues to increase the number of fraud, fraudulent tax returns that they detect and stop from entering in the tax processing system. Um, as of January 2023, the IRS locked taxpayers' accounts of 52.5 million deceased individuals compared to 49.1 million accounts locked as of December 31st, 2021. And just to explain for the listeners what that means, when a tax account is locked, it, the e-filed tax return is rejected and a paper tax return is prevented from posting to that taxpayer's account. And that's really important, you know, as it relates to a deceased individual so that an unscrupulous person doesn't try to steal that individual's identity to file a tax return in their name and likeness. All right. Well, we're going to look forward to that next in-line report and make sure they you know, continued on this great track. Diana Tengesdal is Acting Deputy Inspector General for Audit at the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. 
And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I 
went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it.
Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.